0: Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here with you this morning. I really count it a privilege. And let me just get a little bit organized here. Uh, I see that you have a a transparent pulpit, which means you see my stack of notes, but don't be worried. It's probably not as much as it looks like because I'm printing them out at 16 point font now so I can (laughs) see them. And I think I'm about to bump it up to 18. You know, I was struck by the the prayer request about Nigeria, and that hits close to home for me. I mean, I, as a Bible translation consultant, I've had the privilege of traveling all over the world and helping translation teams work on their translations, and I've made six trips to Nigeria, uh, working with uh, a team of Nigerian translators, translating God's word into their own language, and one year, if this was a few years ago, but I was there in Nigeria in early December, a couple weeks before Christmas, and I got to attend one of their churches, and one of the big prayer requests they prayed was, Lord, please don't let our church be bombed. And how many times have we prayed that for our churches? Probably never. You know, every week when they come to church, they know that's a possibility. And uh, yet they come anyway. They fellowship, and probably none of you Thought about this morning Well I hope our church doesn't get bombed today But I'm going to go anyway just in case it does And they said, because it was just before Christmas They said that's the terrorists' favorite time To bomb churches Is right around Christmas And uh, it just really struck me As I was looking around at those dear brothers and sisters And um, Their church wasn't one of the ones That got bombed But uh, you never know they, they just never know when that's going to happen So So uh, as Josh mentioned, I have the privilege of teaching a course on Bible translation last week and this next week at Nippowin Bible College, and translation has been a major ministry focus for my wife and me for many years, but when I first started preparing for ministry many years ago, I didn't know that that was how God was going to direct me. At that time, I was uh, hoping to do, a, do church planting among an unreached people group somewhere, but he led me into doing translation, which was part of that. And I'd like to read you a verse from the Lamogai New Testament. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, don't bother looking. it won't help you at all. <laughs> so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read John 3:16: "Pongo <laughs> I'm so thankful for the privilege of being able to be involved in Bible translation for all these years. I mean, there's a lot of different things that I could have done. And as I look back on my life, I just wouldn't trade it for anything that God allowed me to do that. Of all the different things that I could have done. But as I said, when I was preparing for training, I didn't really know that Bible translation would be my primary focus. I was focused on reaching unreached people groups. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 15... Verses 20 and 21. No, I can't see it without my glasses. I didn't know if I would be able to or not. It depends on the lighting, I guess. But he said, it, It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. As it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. And those are the verses that God used to show me, actually, I hate to tell you how long ago it was. It was 1974, so that's 50 years ago this year now that we're in 2024, right? Those are the verses that God used to show me that that's what he wanted me to do. He wanted me to be involved in a ministry, reaching unreached people groups, planting churches among a a group of people who didn't have any churches. They didn't have any Bibles in their heart language. There was no gospel witness there. So in 1980, my wife and I went to Papua New Guinea, where we served for over 20 years. We moved into one of the remote villages of the Lamogai tribal people, and we learned their language, we learned their culture. That was very important, not just the language, but also their culture, so we knew how they would understand and interpret the message when we started teaching God's word to them. And... Uh, their language had never been written down before, so I was trained in linguistics. We broke their language down into writing. We taught them how to read and write their own language for the very first time. My wife taught literacy. Of course, we translated the scriptures into their language, and we were part of a team of missionaries that taught them God's word, and many of them came to know the Lord, and the Lord raised up leaders from among the Lamogai believers themselves, and they are they are, have been totally running their own churches for a long time. During the years that we lived among them, we planted churches in four different Lamogai villages. And today there are, are churches in 18 Lamogai villages. So 14 churches were planted completely by the Lamogai believers themselves without any missionary assistance. And of course... You know, the young, new churches don't have any mature believers. You know, the more mature churches, there are elders and pastors that have been ordained. But in the newer churches, they don't have that. So they have to have Bible teachers that they can send out to all these outreach churches. So they devised their own Bible teacher training program. And one time we were there, my wife and I make regular trips back to Papua New Guinea. And we were there and we were talking to them, asking them about this Bible teacher training program that they had developed themselves and uh, they said, yeah, there are a lot of young men that are in this program that are going to go out and be Bible teachers because uh, they send them out two by two for safety. And they also send them with their wives, if they're married, also for safety. And so we we were asking them, well, who's taking this Bible teacher training program? And we were wondering maybe how many there were. And so they started counting the individuals from each village and village by village and, and trainee by trainee. And, and when they finished As we were making a list, at that particular time, there were 88 young men in training to be Bible teachers to go to all these different uh, churches. And just a couple weeks later, we were on our way traveling back to the States from Papua New Guinea, and we stopped off in Australia. And I spoke in a church, and I mentioned that, 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 yeah, they had these 88 trainees. And they said, well, send some of them here. We need them. So uh, it's really a privilege to me to be able to be Investing the years of experience that God has given me in the lives of young people like the young people at Nippppewin Bible College, developing passionate followers of Jesus Christ with a heart to serve, I wrote that in my notes i i don't have that memorized, but I think I said it correctly did i it's It's just wonderful to see young people that they have a heart for for serving God in some way, and uh it 's just Uh, I just really am thankful for the privilege of being there. Now, I know most of you will never have the kind of ministry that God allowed us to have, but every one of you daily will have opportunities to walk with God and to trust him, sometimes in brand new ways that you've never trusted him before. God gives every one of us faith opportunities, opportunities to exercise faith in him. And when he does, it can be exciting, but it can also be scary, right? With a certain amount of uncertainty. Maybe sometimes there's even impossibility, and sometimes you'll probably feel stretched to the limit and beyond. Maybe like Abraham, who set out not knowing where he was going. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, it says, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Before we go any further, let's just pause and commit our time to the Lord. Thank you so much, Lord, that we have your word in a form that we can read it and understand it, that your Holy Spirit can use it to transform our lives, to make us more like you. Thank you that we can meet openly and we don't have to worry about uh, the kinds of things that people have to worry about in so many parts of the world or in many places that it's impossible for them to meet openly, to worship you, to sing praises, to hear your word taught. Thank you that we can do that, at least so far we can. I pray, Lord, for each person that's here. I believe you brought them here. I pray you'll help each one to be able to set aside whatever concerns may be weighing down on them today and focus on what you have for them in your word. Help me to be your instrument to communicate your word clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we're going to talk about faith, and we're going to use the life of Abraham as a springboard to look at what faith is. Now, there are a lot of different individuals in the Bible that we could use as a springboard for talking about faith. Hebrews 11 gives us a whole list of them. But for some reason, Abraham sometimes seems to almost be emblematic of faith. You know, people sometimes probably pray, Lord, give me the perseverance of Job, and give me the boldness of the Apostle Paul, and give me the faith of Abraham. In Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul uses the life of Abraham as an illustration to talk about faith. And we're going to look at some of the verses in Romans 4, but we're not going to do a full exposition of the chapter because the the primary focus of the Apostle Paul in in Romans 4, even when he's talking about Abraham, is to contrast faith with other things that people might rely on to be justified before God like their good works or following the, end, the Old Testament law or the Jewish rite of circumcision. And that contrast is very important, but we'll save that for another day. I'm sure your pastor has talked about that contrast many times, and I'm sure he will many times again in the future. So today, as we look at the life of Abraham and talk about faith, we're really more just going to focus on what faith is and what faith is not. In Romans chapter 4, verse 3 the Apostle Paul quoted that important verse from Genesis fifteen six. He said, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now, at the time of Genesis 15, when this statement was made, Abraham was already in the promised land. But he didn't have any children yet. So he kind of took the opportunity to remind the Lord about it just in case he hadn't noticed that if something didn't change pretty soon, he was going to have to adopt his servant Eliezer to be his heir. And the Lord said, it's okay, Abraham. I have everything under control. No, you are not going to adopt Eliezer to be your heir. I'm going to give you a son of your very own. Then the Lord took Abraham outside and he told him to look up at the sky and count the stars. And he said, so shall your offspring be. In other words, what the Lord was saying is, don't worry, Abram. That was his name then, Abram. I'm probably going to switch back and forth, Abram and Abraham. Your descendants are going to be so many, it would be impossible for you to count them, just like it's impossible for you to count the stars. Then comes that simple yet profound statement. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham fully accepted this promise from God, believing that he was going to promise that he was going to fulfill it, even though it was seemingly impossible. It was in direct opposition to human wisdom and human logic. So then Paul goes on in Romans chapter 4 to describe this. And we we already read um, we already read these verses plus a few more, but I just want to read them once once again as we consider this, as we consider the, the example of Abraham and faith against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be without weakening in faith. He faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. That is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, why did God have to make it so extremely impossible? I mean, here's Abram, Abraham, Abram. He was about 100 years old, it says, and Sarah wasn't a whole lot younger. Plus, apparently Sarah wasn't able to have children even when she was younger. I mean, if God wanted to give Abram a son, couldn't he have done it in like a more normal way? Maybe he could have appeared to him when he was like 25 and then he could have and promised to give him a son and then he could have given him that son when he was like 30. But would that have been the same? I don't think it would have been. I believe God purposely waited until it was absolutely impossible from a human perspective to remove all doubt that God is the one who miraculously gave that son to Abraham and Sarah. If God had given him a son when he was 30 years old, Abram no doubt would have praised God for the wonderful blessing of that precious son. But I think there always would be the temptation in Abram's mind to think, Well, maybe Isaac would have been born anyway, even if God hadn't appeared to me ahead of time and promised to give me a son. By allowing the situation to become completely impossible, God was giving Abraham a special kind of faith opportunity. And one of the most important elements of faith is realizing in any given situation that without God, it is utterly impossible. And the more impossible a situation is, the greater the potential there is for exercising faith. As it says here, Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Now, we know from Scripture that God fulfilled the promise that he gave to Abraham. He gave him that son, Isaac, in his old age. But then, several years later, God gave Abraham another kind of faith opportunity. We read about it in Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis 22, verse 2, it says, God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, I will tell you. Why would God even ask Abraham to do such a thing? He he knew how much he loved this precious son. Think of the turmoil that must have been going through Abraham's heart and mind during those three long days as he was journeying to some faraway mountain where he fully believed that he was going to have to sacrifice his precious son by his own hand. Why would God even suggest such a thing? Was God just toying with Abraham's feelings, kind of like a, a cat toys with a mouse? Does God delight in seeing us face extreme Difficulty? Of course not. But he does delight in seeing us exercise faith in him. When we face a difficult or impossible situation, God is giving us a special opportunity to please him by exercising faith in him. As it says in Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Now God told Abraham... To sacrifice his son. But what if God had just spoken with him more in, in like a hypothetical situation, like rather than actually asking him to sacrifice his son? Maybe, maybe the Lord could have said, Abram, I want to ask you a question. What would you do if I were to ask you to take your precious son, Isaac, to a faraway mountain and sacrifice him as a burnt offering? Now, I'm not saying that I'm actually going to ask you to do this, but if I were to ask you to do that, what would you do? Would you do it? then Abram probably would have said, well, Lord, if you were to ask me, and I know you probably would never ask me to do this, but if you were to ask me to take my precious son Isaac and sacrifice him as a burnt offering, well, yes, yes, I would do it. But is that the same? Is that all there is to faith? Faith is not just words that we say. Faith is an all-encompassing attitude of the heart that manifests itself in right actions and right responses in real life situations. When God told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, he didn't hesitate. The Bible says he left early the next morning. He didn't grumble. He didn't complain. He didn't even ask God, why? Why have you asked me to do this? When faced with a difficult or impossible situation, faith says, Lord, I don't understand why this is happening to me or why you have asked me to do this, but I do know that you are God, and I know that you are always right, and I know that you will cause this situation to turn out for the very best, even though I totally don't understand it right now, and I totally can't see what good is going to come of it, but I'm going to trust you. That's what faith says. Now, how many of you believe that God can do anything? If you believe that, raise your hand. God can do anything. Well, I think that was like 100%. So that's great. God is never going to have to ask any of us ever again about our faith because he saw us raise our hands so he knows no matter what comes into our lives, we are just going to trust him, right? But is that all there is to faith? No, no. Faith isn't something that we say. Faith is something we exercise when real-life situations come to us. It's easy to believe it will rain if you're in Papua New Guinea in the rainy season. It's easy to believe that it it will be sunny if you live in Death Valley. It's easy to believe that it will snow if you're in Siberia or in (laughs) Nippon. Although I guess you haven't gotten as much snow lately as you expected, right? But it's snowing. Of course, God is the one who's responsible for those things, right? God controls the rain and the sun and the snow, but it doesn't take a whole lot of faith to believe that those things will happen in their seemingly normal situations. That really doesn't stretch our faith. And that's why God often allows situations, as with Abraham, to get to the point where it is absolutely impossible from a human perspective, just to remind us that we can't do it on our own. And also, it's not going to just naturally take care of itself all by itself. God is going to have to intervene. Why did God allow his chosen people, Israel, to suffer as slaves in Israel for all those years under those brutal taskmasters? They were trapped there in Egypt. Why did God allow that to happen? Well, I don't have the full answer to that. But one reason is God wanted them to realize how utterly hopeless it was so that they would exercise faith in him. Of course, God miraculously delivered them from Egypt, didn't he? But then shortly after that, they found themselves faced with another huge faith opportunity. They were backed up against the Red Sea with the Egyptian army hot in pursuit. But instead of trusting God, they chose to grumble against the person that they held responsible for getting them into such a predicament, that troublemaker Moses. They just didn't get it. God was graciously giving them a special, unique opportunity to please him by exercising faith in him. But instead of allowing God to work in their lives, they just complained about his active involvement with him. They threw out this opportunity to move to a higher plane in their faith. And they just grumbled. Then after miraculously saving them at the Red Sea, of course, they were in the wilderness and they had many more faith opportunities. They found themselves without water, without food. There were giants in the promised land. In every one of those situations, God was giving them unique opportunities to please him by exercising faith in him. That desert was the perfect place for cultivating faith, but they refused to let those seeds of faith grow. Time and time again, they hardened their hearts and they refused to believe. Now, Scripture tells us that faith and sight are incompatible. And I love that last song that we sang uh, just before the message. And I'm going to guess that that was intentional, right? Because you knew what the message was going to be about. I love that song about we walk by faith, not by sight. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, that's what we do right now. We walk by faith, not by sight. But that is all going to change, There will be a day when every one of us who is a believer, we will stand in God's presence. And on that day, guess what? We will walk by sight, not by faith. There's an old hymn that says, Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. Now, it's worth mentioning that faith is something that only you and I as human beings get to exercise. The angels can never exercise faith. Why is that? Well they've stood in his presence. They have seen God in his full glory. And of course faith and sight are incompatible. When when Satan and his gang of fallen angels rebelled, they were immediately judged swiftly without remedy. Why didn't God offer Lucifer and those other angels grace like he offered to Adam and Eve when they sinned? Because they had stood in his presence. It's impossible. There's only one way to appropriate grace, and that is through faith. The angels cannot exercise faith because they have seen God in his full glory. You know, faith is a brilliantly devised feature of God's plan. When Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, they communed with God on some level, and we don't know exactly what that looked like. But we do know that God did not show them a full manifestation of his glory, because if he had, then later when they fell into sin, then they also would have been judged swiftly without remedy. They would not have been able to exercise faith. In God's omniscience, he knew in advance that faith was going to be necessary, so he made sure that Adam and Eve did not see his full glory, even when they were still in their innocent state before they had sinned. Exercising faith is an amazing privilege from God, but we don't always view it that way, do we? We're usually not too thrilled about situations that we may find ourselves like in, like Abraham, where we have to set out not knowing where we're going. I think we mostly prefer to feel like we do kind of know where we're going, at least on some level. We like to have an idea of what's happening. We like to have an idea of what there is down the road at least some distance, and we hope there won't be a whole lot of surprises. We don't, we're, we're not really thrilled when we find ourselves in a situation where faith is the only option, no other option. And sometimes it's not just that we can't see down the road, but it's maybe what we can see is looking pretty scary. And it's looking maybe even impossible, like total chaos, like life is out of control. And how could anything good possibly come of this situation? Imagine you're floating out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean in a tiny little rowboat. Your, pers- your perspective wouldn't take in very much of the entire ocean. If you're right down at sea level with no land and no mountains rising up above the horizon, then the total distance you can see in any given direction is about 4 kilometers. So that means the total 360-degree vantage point that you have is only about 8 kilometers. And if you're way up in a, in a lookout's crow's nest, 50 feet Higher, you only see about 13 kilometers in each direction. A total vantage point of about 26 kilometers. That's not very much when you consider it. How much is it? Well, if you were to take a full size gymnasium, your vantage point would be about the size of the end of a the eraser of a pencil, the circle on the end of a pencil. Do any, does anyone still use pencils that have erasers on them? Anyway, it's about that a circle that big in the middle of a full-sized gymnasium floor. Over 500 years ago, Christopher Columbus set sail westward from Spain. He led a a fleet of ships across the Atlantic Ocean, and he sailed westward in faith, fully believing that he was going to reach land, even though he couldn't see it until it was just a few kilometers away. Of course, some people tried to convince him not to go. They said, you're going to sail off the end of the earth, and you're never coming back. But he set out anyway. During the longest part of the journey, they sailed for over a month without seeing any land in any direction. And twice, the lookout on duty thought he saw land when he actually didn't. Land ho! he shouted. Imagine the excitement! And then the letdown and the discouragement when he says, Oops, my bad, another false sighting. Columbus' eyes of faith could see beyond the western horizon to the land that he was convinced they would eventually reach. But the 90 men who sailed with him on the Niña, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, many of them could not see that. At one point, the the sailors threatened mutiny. And they finally agreed, okay, we'll sail westward for three more days, and if we don't reach land, we're turning all three ships around and going back home. Two days later, they reached land. You know, often I think we're like those 90 sailors that sailed with Columbus on those ships. We focus on what we can see within our own tiny little horizons, and we can easily become confused and frustrated and discouraged. We can begin to think that things must have taken a wrong turn. Surely this isn't part of God's plan. Now, every one of us, as believers, everyone in this room who is a believer, we have all exercised faith in God on some level. We all trust him some distance beyond the visible horizon. And we may be at various places in how far beyond the horizon we're trusting him. Is God content for us to just stay exactly where we are? Oh, yeah, that's great. You trust me a tiny ways beyond the horizon? Hey, that's awesome. No, I don't think so. I don't think he wants us to stay where we are. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 15, the Apostle Paul wrote, we hope that your faith will grow. So what does it mean for our faith to grow? How can I know if my faith is growing? Well, if we consider the example of floating on the ocean in that little boat, where does faith reside? Only beyond the horizon, only where we cannot see. And how far? Well, that's up to each one of us. Since faith only applies to what is beyond the horizon, presumably faith growing means today I am trusting God farther beyond that horizon than I was yesterday. I'm trusting him in new ways that I've never trusted him before. So we could ask ourselves, is my range of faith expanding or is it staying the same or is it shrinking? You know, God's timing is always perfect. In John chapter 11, when Jesus was notified that Lazarus was sick, what did he do? He, he intentionally stayed where he was for a couple extra days until after Lazarus had died. And by doing that, he caused that situation to be a much greater faith opportunity for Mary and Martha and the disciples and whoever else was there. Then one time after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to Ten of his disciples behind a locked door, but Thomas didn't happen to be there. Oh, that's too bad, isn't it? I mean, isn't that too bad that that Thomas didn't get to be there? Don't you feel sorry for Thomas? Well, I don't. I think Jesus singled Thomas out and gave him a unique faith opportunity of trusting and believing in the risen Lord without seeing him first, a, a specifically unique opportunity that none of the other disciples had in quite that way. But Thomas didn't take advantage of that opportunity, did he? He said, unless I see with my eyes, I will not believe. So then eventually when Jesus appeared to Thomas, he said, because you have seen me, you have believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas missed out on a special blessing. It was a unique opportunity designed especially for him that none of the other disciples had, and he He blew it. He let it slip through his fingers. What about us? How often do we allow faith opportunities to slip through our fingers? Faith opportunities that God has designed specifically with us in mind. When we find ourselves facing a humanly impossible situation, how do we handle it? Do we use it as an opportunity to please God and glorify Him by exercising faith in Him, or do we use it as an opportunity to grumble and complain? Or, or maybe to give up and quit. At times, we may feel like we've been singled out. Like our trials and tests are way harder than everyone else. At, at a time like that, what do we do? Do we say, Lord, why does everything seem to have to be so difficult for me when from, from where I sit, it looks like it's quite a bit easier for almost everyone else? Is that what we say? Really, we should be thanking God. We should say, thank you, Lord, for giving me this special, unique opportunity to please you by exercising faith in you. Help me not to lose out on this benefit. Don't let me allow it to slip through my fingers like Thomas did. Help me to glorify you through this situation, and help me not to miss out on any of the lessons that you want to teach me through this situation that you designed specifically with me in mind. You know, sometimes I think our view of faith is a bit distorted. Sometimes I think we, we feel, well, faith is like this. I face an impossible situation, so I pray in faith, and I trust God. So, okay, now this impossible situation has to go poof and disappear, right? Well, I don't think that's a correct view of faith. I think a a, a more true view of faith would be like this. We face an impossible situation, so we pray in faith and trust God. Then the situation gets worse, So we keep praying and trusting God. Then the situation becomes excruciatingly painful. So we pray and trust God. That is faith. But the thing that our flesh doesn't like about situations like that where we have no choice but to exercise faith is we feel like we're no longer in control. Well, the truth of the matter is we never were in control to begin with. We just fooled ourselves into thinking we were. You know, the Apostle Paul planted a lot of churches in his ministry and one city that he planted a church in was the city of Thessalonica and at that particular time if you read in the book of Acts and in the books of, of the letters of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians you'll see that at that time Thessalonica was a hotbed of anti-christian activism i think the the believers in Thessalonica faced some of the worst opposition of any of the 1st century christians of course paul loved the believers so much he was deeply concerned for them and he spent a lot of time praying for them in fact he wrote out some of his prayers for them right there in the letters of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And I find it interesting as I read the prayers of Paul in the letters of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, I do not see him praying that the opposition will end. Instead, I see him time and time again praying that the believers will stand strong in their faith despite the opposition. Listen to this. This is important. Paul didn't pray that their faith would not be tested he prayed that their faith would pass the test. You know, everything God allows to come into our lives is a trust. Sometimes he showers blessings on us, and he loves to do that because he knows when he showers blessings on us, it has the, potet- the potential of causing us to be more in awe of him and to glorify him and to thank him all that much more. That has eternal value. But you know, there's something that may have even greater value. That is when God entrusts us with an impossible situation. Or better yet, when he entrusts us with a long, drawn-out, excruciatingly painful trial because he knows in the end when he takes us through that trial, and he will. Every trial is temporary. He will take us through that trial. He knows that has a potential of causing us to be even more in awe of him and to praise and glorify him even more. We shouldn't view a painful trial just as something bad, just as something that we wish had never happened or something that we wish would go away, an impossible situation or a painful trial is something extremely valuable that God has entrusted to us. God could say, Dave, this trial is an extremely precious treasure that I'm entrusting to you. It's priceless. It's a potential gold mine of spiritual growth and of deepened intimacy with me. So what am I going to do with it? Will I cast myself on the Lord and allow my faith to grow? Praising him for the deepened intimacy that that trial affords me? Or will I become bitter and allow my faith to shrink? Trials are a sacred trust, a sacred stewardship from God. And as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove Faithful. Now, I believe this is at least just one small part of the why of our trials. If you're inclined to ask why when a difficult situation comes into your life, and I think it's fine to ask why. I don't think we can demand that God give us a reason, but it's fine to ask why. We all, we all do that. But if you're inclined to ask why when you're facing a difficult situation or an impossible situation, maybe this is at least part of the reason. God saw in you the potential to trust him even through such a trial as that. Not everyone was entrusted with that huge of a trial. This may be a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for you to appropriate God's grace in a special way. And if you do trust in his grace, the benefits can be staggering. Huge strides in your spiritual growth and much deeper intimacy with God. You know, when Jesus told the parable of the talents... In the New Testament, he was obviously talking about abilities and resources and time and energy that he has entrusted to us, and he wants us to be faithful in using those for him. But I believe it would also be appropriate to apply the parable of the talents to trials and impossible situations in our lives. Will I allow those trials to be an investment for eternity? Or will I hide them away in a handkerchief, a handkerchief of anger and bitterness and shrinking faith. What if God never, ever allowed impossible situations to come into our lives? Well, I think for most of us, we'd probably spend a lot more time trusting in ourselves and leaning on our own understanding. Sometimes we forget about the importance of casting ourselves on Him, in dependence on Him, until we find ourselves facing another difficult or even impossible situation. In times like that, it might be fitting to paraphrase Hebrews eleven six to say without impossible situations it's impossible for me to please God anytime I see a particular situation as being possible like oh yeah I can handle that I have that under control in those situations I'm much less likely to exercise faith in God but when I realize and I admit that a situation is totally out of my control that's when I'm much more likely to to cast myself in dependence on him Trials are evidence of God's faithfulness in our lives. God is faithful to always provide us with reasons to to exercise faith in him. What if we met together for a prayer meeting, and then we, as we sat there, we just all looked at each other and we're like, Hey, you know what? There's nothing to pray about today. I guess we'll just postpone the prayer meeting. We'll reconvene sometime when there's something to pray about. Obviously, that will never happen. God is faithful to make sure that we always have plenty to pray about, and he's faithful to make sure that we always have plenty of reasons to trust him, to cast ourselves in dependence on him. When life looks confusing and we feel like like there are just a bunch of unanswered questions, we don't have any answers, that can be a good thing, because that means the answers are going to have to come from God. If, I, if we ever get to the point where we feel like we do have all the answers, all our ducks in a row, maybe that's when we need to start to worry a bit. One king that I like to read about in the Old Testament is Hezekiah. You know, the Lord allowed Hezekiah to go through some pretty amazing trials, like when, uh, when Sennacherib came with his massive army from Assyria and threatened to destroy Jerusalem. What did Hezekiah do? He poured his heart out before the Lord. You know, I think Hezekiah passed those tests with flying colors. But in one sense, those tests were really the easy tests. Later on in Hezekiah's life, he faced another test, which I think can be maybe one of the most difficult of all tests to pass. You know what it was? Everything went right for him. In Second Chronicles chapter 32 in verses 27 through 30, we read about many of Hezekiah's great accomplishments. And they, they were pretty impressive. They really were. And then down at the end of that, in verse 31, it says, Hezekiah succeeded in everything he undertook. But then in the very next verse, in verse 31, it says, But, but, when envoys were sent by the rulers of Babylon to ask him about the miraculous sign that had occurred in the land, listen to this, God left him to test him and to know everything that was in his heart. If you read on, you'll see that is the trial that Hezekiah failed. When everything was going right, when he was successful in everything he undertook, Suppose a friend of yours called you on the phone and said, Hey, you got to pray for me. I'm going through the worst trial of my entire life. It's like, like nothing goes wrong anymore. It's like no matter what I do, everything just turns out right. And I'm like, will this trial never end? Not too, li- not too likely we would say that, but maybe we should because that can be one of the most difficult tests to pass. Remembering to cast ourselves on in total dependence on God when everything is going right. Dealing with impossibilities can be easy by comparison. As we continue to walk with God, there will probably be plenty of unknowns, plenty of questions without answers, maybe even some impossible situations. Of course, that's the perfect environment for us to exercise faith in God. It's also the perfect environment for Him to demonstrate His power on our behalf. At the end of our lives on earth, what will we have that we will offer to God that He would say, well done, good and faithful servant. Will it be all of our great accomplishments on earth? Will it be all of the goodness in my heart? I don't think so. One thing that you and I can offer to God that will never, ever stop glorifying him throughout all of eternity is our faith. The faith that we exercise in big situations or in little situations. It may be even be a tiny step of faith where you had a choice. Am I gonna, am I gonna trust God or not, okay, I'm going to trust him. Even in a tiny situation that maybe it was so tiny, you already forgot about it a long time ago. But guess what? God didn't forget about it. Every ounce of faith will shine brightly throughout all of eternity. It will never, ever fade, even in the least. It will continue glorifying God forever. God is constantly at work in each one of our lives. He's constantly giving us opportunities to exercise faith in him, even in new and different ways. He wants us to broaden our horizons. He wants us to trust him today farther beyond the visible horizon than we did yesterday. When you find yourselves facing difficult or impossible situations, take time to thank God for the fact that he is in control and thank him for the awesome privilege of pleasing him by exercising faith in him. Let's pray. Thank you again, Lord, for your word. I pray you'll take these eternal truths and use them to work in each one of our lives, the things that you want us to do today. In Jesus' name, amen.